This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On that morning, I was uh, among millions of other people in Kiev who woke up at 5 a.m. to the sound of heavy explosions. And at first, I, I, I didn't think about war. I, 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 till the very last moment, I couldn't believe that, that, that this would happen. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey everyone, this is Mark Arlosko, military advisor from PAX. And I'm Annie Scheel, Senior Advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. And in today's episode, we're talking about a conflict that has dominated headlines and exacted an appalling toll on civilians in a matter of weeks. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. And there, there we Ali, go. I've just heard uh, the first siren has just gone off. That indicates that this is a city under attack. Since that day, thousands of civilians have been killed or injured. 3.6 million people have fled Ukraine as refugees, and 6.5 million more have been internally displaced. An estimated 12 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. PAX has been active in Ukraine since 2014, working through Ukrainian partners to strengthen civil society and support dialogue for conflict resolution. Civic has also been working on the protection of civilians in Ukraine since 2016. Our Ukraine program staff, all Ukrainians, are still in the country. As they continue Civic's efforts to protect civilians, they're also experiencing this intense escalation of conflict as civilians themselves. For today's episode, I sat down with Beatrice Godefroy, our Europe program director based in Geneva, Switzerland, and Oksana and Lisa, two members of our Ukraine team, to talk about what these last few weeks have been like for civilians. And I'm actually going to hand the conversation over to them. So starting with you, Beatrice, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Thanks, Mark. Um, so I'm Beatrice Godfrey. I'm the Europe Director for Civic, and I've been um, overseeing our activities in Ukraine since uh, 2018. And uh, my name is Oksana, and I'm Interim Country Director for Civic Program in Ukraine. I'm Lisa. I used to be Civic Ukraine Director in 2017, 2020. And uh, right before the war, I handed over to Oksana, but now I'm, um, I'm helping the um, uh, Ukraine team in an advisory capacity. Before we, we talk about the invasion um, of Russia on Ukraine and the situation of the Ukrainian civilians today, I want us to get back uh, to a few years ago, uh, because it's not the first time that Ukrainians have experienced war. And you both, um, Oksana and Lisa and Civic, had actually been in Ukraine working on civilian protection since 2017. So could you explain to us a little bit more about that history? I will start with uh, maybe um, reminding you that uh, at the beginning of February, when uh, Ukrainian partners of Ukraine, uh, US and UK, started warning Ukraine about uh, potential Russia's invasion or attack, um, everybody in 
uh, other countries who were watching the situation unfold in Ukraine were surprised with how calm Ukrainians were reacting to all those warnings and messages. And um, yeah, that's like all people who from abroad whom I talked to were asking me, like, Oksana, why people are so calm when they're not panicking? When they're, why they're not trying to flee Ukraine? And actually, the common answer to this question was that Ukrainians uh, are in war with Russia for eight years already, and they kind of used to be in danger uh, for those uh, eight years. And uh, just to explain that, we have to come back to the uh, events of 2013-2014, when uh, Ukrainians uh, started protesting against, uh, at that time, Ukrainian government changing the course of the whole country from European integration to a closer integration with Russia. And uh, that's when it all started, when Ukrainians kind of uh, protested, on, peacefully protested on the streets, and then peaceful protest um, was uh, not peaceful anymore when government decided to use force against, against protesters. I was among those people who protested along with hundreds of thousands of others in Kyiv and all over Ukraine. And then in 14, when we finally kind of achieved our goals in terms of going back to European direction of our country, um, Russia used that uh, time uh, when the government and the president of Ukraine fled Ukraine to Russia. Um, that may be a time of weakness when it was a transition from one govern government to another to invade Crimea. And uh, that was a first um, first invasion back in March uh, 2014. Uh, so Russia occupied Crimea first, and then um, later in several months, Russia backed up a separatist in the eastern Ukraine, in Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, which is commonly been referred as Donbass. So that's uh, when Ukrainian war against Russia started, when we lost a, a big chunk of our territory and a lot of our people, which is more more important. So uh, in 2014, this line of contact was established when occupied and not occupied territories were divided uh, in eastern Ukraine. And that's where civilian suffering started as well, when people on both, both sides of the contact line were affected by hostilities, ongoing hostilities. And those hostilities have never stopped for the last uh, eight years. In 2016, Civic uh, came to Ukraine and uh, started uh, with um, talking to civilians uh, along the contact line uh, in the government-controlled territories, primarily because that's where we had access, uh, and produced its first report, We Are Afraid of Silence, where uh, civilians were talking about constant shelling, shooting um, in those areas along the contact line. But then over time, um, due to a lot of efforts, there was some uh, decrease uh, in hostilities, but it wasn't as intense. Uh, although at the same time, uh, other issues were coming up and becoming, you know, like more dire. Uh, like, uh, for example, mines and unexploded uh, ordinances. They were, you know, like that territory is just filled up. There were issues of accessibility to basic services. It was uh, this so-called 
kind of protracted uh, type of you know like uh, issues that are normal for protracted crisis um, and obviously another big thing was psychological uh, harm to uh, when whenever we were talking and engaging with uh, communities along the contact line that was obvious people were Zaksana said, living on, in war conditions for eight years, that's for sure. Yes, it wasn't as intense as it is right now, uh, but it's still, it was still a war. Uh, that's, uh, th- that was obvious. So fast forwarding to February 24th, 2022, where were each of you when you learned that the invasion had started? How did you find out and what was that day like? So... Uh, I think I was probably I was the luckiest uh, member of civics team um, because I I'm just coming from a Western from Western Ukraine, which is currently the safest place in uh, in the country, and I uh, traveled to my parents to work remotely, and uh, and actually uh, a day before. Uh, the war started. I started looking at the calendar, picking the day when I will go back to Kiev. Uh, and then on February 24, um, you know, like I'm living this uh, nice, uh, very calm life in a very small city. Um, and then um, at 5 a.m., I received this call from one of our um, um, partners from the uh, military uh, who was telling me, okay, so it started. It's like, what started? Uh, and he says that um, uh, the Borispol airport is burning and the Yavariv um, training center is burning, the war started. And he asked me uh, to call um, all our colleagues uh, so that, you know, like to let people know that they have to start preparing for, you know, like to getting packed or, you know, like to, to watch out what will be happening in the coming hours. Obviously, after that, we started uh, calling each other and, you know, checking on each other. Um, and uh, the first half of the day was just full of these question marks. Uh, should we flee? Should we stay? Um, luckily, you know, like we had extensive uh, contingency planning exercises uh, at the end of the year, right before the holidays. Like uh, after some of the exercises, I decided, okay, I'm leaving the keys of my car in the office just in case In, in so if, you know, like one of our colleagues with the families have to leave, at least he will save my car as well. And, and it was just a joke at that moment. But then all of a sudden it, it all became reality, you know, like he was calling me saying, okay, I'm going and, you know, like I will take your keys because I need to get out of Kiev with my family and and yes obviously that was something that he had to do on that morning I was uh, among millions of other people in Kiev who woke up at 5 a.m. to the sound of heavy explosions uh, and at first I, I I didn't think about war I, I, I till the very last moment I couldn't believe that that, that this would happen. So my first thought was that it's uh, something's happening on the construction site close to my apartment building where I live in Kiev. And I was like, oh my God, who would do that at 5 a.m. in the morning? But then when those explosions continued to became more loud and loud, I realized that it's not a construction, that's something going on. And then like the second or even third thought was that yes, what was, Others were warning us uh, that's actually what's happening. 
And as Lisa said, yes, the first thing we did, we just started calling each other, our colleagues, our friends and family, checking, um, talking what we should do next. Uh, and um, yeah, at first we didn't we didn't think that this would be a full-fledged war. We still thought that it might be something like a shorter or not that that bad as it, we see it, it is right now. So we had this contingency plan in place and uh, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have a car, I don't drive. So I'm very lucky we had this preliminary arrangements with our colleagues who, who had cars and who could drive. So I made the decision that it is better to leave Kiev. Uh, so I did that morning after we had all the discussions um, I left with, with, with another colleague uh, who was driving me um, from Kiev uh, to the site, uh, which was preliminary kind of agreed. Um, we were driving and like, it was, a, it was a very weird feeling when you can see how city is very unusually empty that morning, that people whom you can see are all carrying bags and suitcases trying to flee that was very un, 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 like an unsettling feeling. And then the huge, huge traffic jams on, uh, on the roads because everybody at the, at the, pretty much at the same moment decided to leave the city. So while we were driving out of the city, we were driving by the power station on the bank of the, of the Dnieper River. So we were driving along the, the river which was attacked and uh, that was also another very scary maybe a wake-up call that this is exactly what's happening we are being under attack from the air um, and uh, yeah that that was another moment when we had to you know to do the real reality check for ourselves and um, yeah with from there we we helped others who were still on the road to keep safe and, and secure as much as possible. Another civic staff member, Katya, was living in Kharkiv when the invasion began. Since then, Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, has been a near constant target of Russian shelling. Katya described her experience living through that shelling and the difficult journey out of the city. What you're about to hear is Katya speaking in Ukrainian with an English voiceover. When the war started, we were woken up by a phone call from my mom, who lives in Milova, on the border with Russia. She told us she heard shelling and explosions. Fifteen minutes after the phone call, explosions and shelling could be heard in Kharkiv, where my husband, two of our children, and I live. We could see it all from our window as we live on the outskirts of the city. My first thought was, it has started. And my second thought was, we have to run, grab our stuff, and save ourselves. We went to the basement to shelter. My kids were so scared, they didn't even want to come out of the basement when it became quiet. I told them we had to pick up some warm clothes from our apartment because it was very cold, humid, and dark in the basement, and we didn't know how much time we would have to spend there. Later that day, we decided that we needed to evacuate our children from the city, while my husband and I decided to stay. Since day one, we were going back and forth between our apartment on the 11th floor and the basement every time we heard shelling. Sirens didn't work in the city during the first several days. We had to go to the basement with all our stuff and a dog several times a day, and there were days when we stayed in the basement overnight. It was very exhausting, as the basement was not equipped for people to stay there. At first, there were not many people in the basement. 
than the number grew. After several days, we ended up staying with the same people in the basement, the regulars. Every day, more and more people, especially families with children, were trying to escape from the city as shelling became worse and much closer. We could hear rocket shelling every day, and people in the basement would discuss how many buildings were destroyed. I also heard people saying that there was a whole community living in the Kharkiv metro. Volunteers helped those people with delivering food, water, and other supplies. I was on a train with a woman who told me that she felt much more comfortable living underground 24-7. She couldn't make herself go outside, as it was too dangerous. In the subway, she felt safe and that she was not alone. There was a possibility to leave the city. However, it was very difficult and dangerous. The first key challenge was to get to the train station. Public transportation didn't work, and taking a taxi was almost impossible, as driving in the city was dangerous due to constant shelling. At the time I decided to leave, shellings were in the downtown of Kharkiv all day long, not just at night. There were many cases when citizens of Kharkiv were killed while standing at the bus stop on the street, or in the lineup near the grocery store, or just at home. These, of course, caused panic among citizens. There were hundreds and thousands of people at Kharkiv train station trying to evacuate. Children, elderly, people with disabilities, people with pets. It was very difficult for police and territorial defense representatives to organize people who were scared and panicking. There was no valid train schedule, so it was impossible to know departure times. This added even more to the panic. It felt like either you would leave now or never. Those people who stayed in Kharkiv continued supporting each other, creating groups on social media, exchanging news, checking on each other. I've also subscribed to several of such communication channels as it's very important part of my life. I want to know what happened to my home and if my children have a place to come back to. I feel that people are ready to continue resisting and then rebuilding everything that was destroyed. Ukrainians want peace and peace on our terms when we win. Katya's experience was sadly not unique. We recorded this interview 20 days after Russia's invasion began. And in those 20 days, civic staff received report after report of nonstop shelling and civilian casualties, of besieged communities without access to essential services, and of dangerous journeys for those who were able to evacuate. I have uh, my uh, relatives uh, in my house right now who were able to escape from Bucha. It's one of the small cities around Kiev, which were uh, very um, under heavy attack, and they stayed. Uh, For several days, you know, like it was, um, I mean, they they heard all these sounds of um, shelling, and during the day there were probably a couple of hours when there was quiet uh, time when they could uh, relax a little bit. Uh, but then in several days, uh, the, electricity, the electricity went off, heating went off. Um, so they were basically living in the basement, um, cooking on a fireplace in the yard uh, from when they could get out of, of this place. It was very cold. They were uh, using several blankets and just, you know, like trying to survive um, there. There was uh, no almost no communication and they found one old phone uh, which could, you know, like get the signal in one place in the yard. And it was such a 
relief for everybody when, you know, like after several days, they finally um, told us that they were still alive. Uh, they, at some point, when they started thinking of getting out, uh, they just didn't know how to get out of that place uh, because uh, there were no announcements. I mean, there there is no TV or radio, anything that would let them know that these any evacuation of or safe uh, corridors are being um organized uh so that's that's why you know like again um uh these calls to relatives was the only way to t to let them know um and uh so finally they learned about uh the first kind of evacuation road from uh from this town Pucha. but on their you know like this gathering of the neighbors they decided they won't go because there was so much news about evacuation um uh roads or corridors attacked so they they decided they they would wait until the first kind of uh part of you know like of the buses or the cars would go and see whether they can get out of it and then you know like if it works out well they will try the next day and they were very right. The first uh, evacuation group of people didn't work out. He had a neighbor who was shot at uh, the car and he had to come, to come back. Luckily, nobody was injured in the car, but the tire was um, damaged. Uh, so the next day, uh, they just saw some of these cars uh, going in front of their house and they just rushed into this corridor and just was they just were praying the whole way that, you know, they, they get somewhere. And each a checkpoint, especially the Russians. I mean, you know, like when I was seeing uh, this uh, almost 60-year-old person who was, every time he was remembering this checkpoint, he's crying because, you know, like he said that, he was he he was afraid of looking into the eyes of these people. Just you know, like he was just staring straight away because he just didn't know what they would do to him uh, in any moment. He was just so scared that he just you know like couldn't answer their questions. And he said that you know like he's never ever was so happy to see the uh, Ukrainian banner on the road when you know like finally uh, they uh, reached the first checkpoint controlled by the Ukrainians. Um, no, this is just horrible, you know, like what people had to go through and, and how, you know, like every evening we have these, you know, like family gatherings um, at the dinner and uh, they keep telling all the same stories all the time, all the time and almost crying all the time. Civic also received numerous reports of abuses by Russian forces in occupied and besieged areas from the persecution of local activists and protesters to the looting of homes, including in Kherson, where Oksana's family is from. So they would apply their tactics, which they used in uh, Donbass, in the occupied territories, which they used in Crimea for the last eight years, when uh, they tried to scare uh, local population and put like some fear in them by uh, by violence. So what they decided to do and what they did, they mapped the local activists, local opinion leaders, volunteers, and local government, which were very active and very Ukrainian in their heart. And they were after those people. And uh, we, hear, we heard reports when local authorities were kidnapped, um, local activists were kidnapped and forced 
to say that they support Russia or they're against Ukraine. And if they didn't do so, they were just uh, physically abused. Uh, we also re receive reports that Russian army entering communities behaves very badly. They're looting houses, they're robbing people, um, they're harassing people. Uh, so our government advises all citizens who are in occupied communities just to stay at home, try to not be on the streets, interact with, with any of Russian army, but it is difficult because they are breaking into people's homes. So yeah, that's that's how people are living now in in occupied territories. And um, yeah, I think Mariupol case is one of the worst right now. As we all know, uh, it's been sieged, blocked, and people can't get any help. Um, some escaped in the recent days, um, but we're also repeat, receiving reports that Russian army occupied the, the hospital in Mariupol, taking hostage of uh, a lot of doctors and patients, again, putting their artillery and other weapons in the hospital to, to use those people basically as a human shields. That's what's happening in those communities. Hundreds of thousands of people remain trapped in Mariupol, cut off from the world without food, medicine, power, or running water. Local authorities report that relentless bombing of the besieged city has killed thousands of civilians and damaged or destroyed over 80% of the city's residential buildings. Since we recorded our interview with Oksana and Lisa, the last international journalists left the city after being forced to flee. And uh, what we are receiving from our colleagues um, who stayed uh, or, you know, like one of them is still in Kiev uh, and probably that is applicable to some other cities like Chernihiv, for example, Kharkiv, as you know, is just uh, shelling all the time. Uh, usually it starts e either it's, uh, it's happening either in the middle of the night or at like early morning hours when uh, people are supposed to sleep and um, and they just, uh, you know, like for some reason their own residential houses are being shelled or targeted. And, um, and it's obvious, uh, well, we know that, you know, like a lot of investigation is to be still to be done, but, you know, like it's obvious that a lot of all those residential houses are uh, not even close to any so-called military targets, as they claim, you know, like the de demilitarization. So it's obvious, you know, like that they are, they have these tactics of just uh, scaring people and just uh, making sure that everybody feels vulnerable, um, and uh, especially civilians. Uh, there is there was this horrible story today in Chernihiv when uh, during the day um, there was I think it was some sort of a mine type of uh, I don't know weapon uh, but ten people were killed who were standing in the line for uh, buying bread um, so this is uh, this is a, a, a horrible tactics that Russians are uh, applying specifically targeting civilians. So we can say that for sure already from all the reports and uh, what we are observing happening in Ukraine. 
So Lisa and, and Oksana, while you and your families were, were going through these terrible experiences uh, that you just shared with us, um, you have remained extremely committed to uh, work uh, to support the protection of civilian population in Ukraine. Uh, and, and as a civic team, you've been uh, working hard to try and um, collect information on incidents of civilian harm, to analyze this data, and, and to try and understand what were the main patterns of civilian harm, how civilians were being affected, what were the tactics that Russian forces in particular were using. What we found was uh, in the first, let's say, couple of days of the attack, um, most incidents were um, linked to uh, intense military activities in densely populated areas, and especially to the, with the, the use of non-precision weapons in these cities, which were creating in, in cities such as Kharkiv, Kiev, Mariupol, Vuledar, etc. And in those cities, uh, we, could, uh, we could see mainly, um, let's say, incidents of collateral damage happening, um, linked to, for instance, the use of weapons such as uh, multiple launch rocket systems, who had been prohibited in Ukraine actually since 2018. But as the conflict escalated, the reports of attacks by Russian forces um, that appeared to be um, directed at civilians' areas multiplied. And, and, and the types of incidents that uh, we uh, collected report and um, ranged from um, attacks on uh, civilians themselves, attacks on uh, residential areas, uh, attacks on hospitals, maternities, um, on uh, pediatric houses, uh, psychological clinics, but also attacks on civilian infrastructure such as power plants, uh, dangerous sites such as nuclear plants. And so um, so the whole range of attacks on crit critical infrastructure and dangerous sites, which in other conflicts we would see uh, unfold within maybe months or years, all these different types of attacks were done within one week, 10 days. Uh, and what has been a real challenge is um, is the pace uh, the number, the number of geographical locations involved at the same time, um, a, a number of organizations who are trying to um, to monitor and to actually triangulate data and verify data on the civilian incidents are really struggling with the pace and the number at the moment. Two million people have now been internally displaced in Ukraine, and nearly three million have become refugees. And those numbers will probably be much higher uh, by the time this episode airs. Together, those numbers have doubled in the one week since that first interview. So when people are able to escape the violence, what does that experience look like? I know, Lisa, you are actually hosting displaced people right now. So I think this is the least I can offer to people, you know, like who had to survive uh, these first days uh, or for first weeks, unfortunately, you know, that's how it stands. Uh, today uh, and um, uh, again you know like as, as we and Oksana and I shared that you know like people are either uh, had to stay in the shelter for for days uh, or were uh, had to uh, drive uh, through half of the country in huge traffic jams it took them three days to get uh, to to the city where I'm living, um, and uh, and and most of the cars were packed with relatives, children, and cats, dogs, uh, you know, like and and the the quick the, the, the immediate things or or you know belongings they could think of in that um, 
a stressful uh, time when they were packing. So, um, you know, like when um, I, I was hosting several families, um, uh, some of them decided to move on to relative in, in relatives in Europe, uh, some stayed, uh, another family is still staying in, um, in my apartment. Uh, but some parts of, of this um, story are the same. It's, it's a long uh, way uh, sometimes um, with the, this feeling of uh, whether you are taking the wrong road. Uh, because uh, a lot of roads are now used by the military and the Russian military. We know cases when a tank was just uh, killing um, uh, a, a car with civilians. Um, another issue, especially the first days, was lack of gas uh, on the gas stations. Uh, so people, you know, like they were trying to get to the nearest city for the night and they had this, you know, like gas tank uh, flashing red under the stress and then having the checkpoint not letting them into the city where they could have sleep you know like was you know they normally have some arrangements with either friends or relatives or small hotels because there is a uh, an air air airstrike um, siren go, goes on and you know like the checkpoint now military just doesn't want them to let in and then they still get into the city and they spend the whole night in the shelter uh, because of the um, shelling and bombs um, around them um, the other thing obviously you know like as soon as they get to a safe place um, the first thing they're asking whether we have curfew uh, the second question is um, whether we have sirens um, you know, like one airstrike warnings. And the third one is where is the shelter? And um, one of the families, they couldn't come down until, you know, like we were telling them, we don't have sirens. We never had them. You know, like we are not under attack, whatever. And only when I, I showed them the key from the basement of the private house where I was hosting them and showed them where it is, they come finally come down and they said, okay, so now we feel that we are safe. So... This latest war and latest invasion, of course, is, is such an avoidable, but now feels like such an impossible tragedy to deal with. What must be done to protect civilians? What are our asks as civic of governments? Well, this is such a, a complex and uh, a complex question and a simple answer at the same time. There is only one thing that can help protect civilians at the moment is stopping the fighting. And when we say stopping the fighting, it's, it's not only a few hours here and there in these very unsafe conditions. It's actually bringing about a meaningful ceasefire, a window of silence of several days that we allow civilians to safely evacuate to the place of their choice and we allowed humanitarian access, humanitarian supplies in and out of those hard-to-reach areas or areas under constant shelling. And as, as simple as it may seem to be, you know, saying it that way, it's as we know, it's an extremely uh, challenging thing to, to get to. Um, but so the message that we have at, at Civic is really to, to encourage all governments and international organizations who are at the moment exerting pressure on Russia in very different ways to actually prioritize the protection of civilians and to prioritize this very ask in all the different uh, types of engagement and, and, and measures and efforts at the moment. Um, and um, and they are actually uh, concretely, we, we know it's a, it's a very uh, 
challenging but also difficult endeavor at the moment, for instance, uh, on the question of evacuations, um, humanitarian so-called humanitarian corridors, safe evacuation routes, we have seen how Russia has been instrumentalizing, not to say weaponizing, the conversation on safe evacuations in such a way that would be a- another way to harm civilians. Um, and they are using this narrative against civilians. Uh, but in spite of this, um, in spite of this sort of counter-narrative and, and the way that Russia is, is instrumentalizing this conversation, we still need to make the, 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 uh, the conversation on uh, uh, safe evacuation, safe evacuation, safe evacuation routes, getting in humanitarian supplies, a priority. Um, In addition to this, um, and and thinking forward, there are so many civilian incidents that are being, um, again, reported at the moment. And as I was mentioning earlier, it's hard to keep pace. Uh, Accountability meaning uh, avoiding impunity on these incidents, but also offering civilians uh, a way to, um, to get assistance uh, based uh, on, this, uh, on, on the harm they have been um, uh, facing. Um, so accountability and assistance to victims is an absolute priority as well for our community. So it means concretely supporting the, uh, the recent creation of the Independent Commission of Inquiry created by the Human Rights Council. Uh, the creation is a good step it has to be operationalized and implemented. It means also supporting by all meaningful efforts the work of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, that also decided to... um to, to open an investigation on Ukraine. And it means also supporting the tracking and monitoring efforts of um, monitoring agencies and, uh, and, and different kinds of monitoring actors, including uh, local and international civil societies who are doing an impressive and incredibly hard work to uh, try and track civilian incidents and, and document and verify uh, the facts, the circumstances, the root causes of each and every incident that, that are being reported at the moment. Very concretely, support to these monitoring uh, activities means, of course, financial support to the local organizations and agencies who are doing this, political support as well uh, when it's relevant, but also supporting them with capabilities, um, technical capabilities like access to satellite uh, satellite imagery, for instance, is, is extremely um, helpful and meaningful um, support. And finally, if I may, Annie, I would like to add as well, because we have this big ask to governments, but something that has really made the difference, I think, in terms of, of support to uh, as much as we can, providing support to the Ukrainian population is the mobilization of uh, public opinion and of uh, local, civil, I mean, local and international civil society. The fact that we see in countries in Europe, in America, and everywhere in the world this wave of support for the Ukrainian population is extremely important uh, and meaningful, um, of course, from a human perspective, but also in the leverage that it creates vis-a-vis their own government. And we have seen our governments um, going one step further, doing um, taking uh, unprecedented steps, actually. Uh, for instance, I'm, I'm sitting here in Switzerland, and we have seen Switzerland stepping out of their neutrality in order to try and contribute to sanctions that are being taken. And that's just a small example, obviously, amongst others. So mobilization has to continue. This war is, uh, is uh, as Oksana was mentioning, uh, we didn't know if it would be two days or, um, or three, three weeks or, or three months or three years. We still don't know. So it's, it's going to be a long endeavor for the Ukrainian population. They will need the support of all of us on the long term. Um, again, as, as, um, as uh, 
simple human solidarity, but also as a way to mobilize our own governments so that they keep uh, leveraging uh, and, and using all the efforts that they can to, to better protect civilians. Oksana and Lisa, my last question is for you. What do you want listeners to take away from this episode? So I think I would start with uh, taking this opportunity to thank people around the world for their support for Ukraine and Ukrainian people. Uh, I just want to say that we see it, we feel it, and we, we very much need it. So thank you. And I think what we would like to ask and uh, echoing Beatrice words is just please keep helping Ukraine and keep supporting Ukraine. We, um, we ask you to keep your great work of hosting, hosting Ukrainian refugees, collecting humanitarian aid, and also please keep asking your governments to further support Ukraine in any ways possible. We in Ukraine, like majority of Ukrainians, we feel uh, that it's not just a war between Ukraine and Russia. That's a war for democracy, for our common European uh, values, for the right to make your own choices, the right to have your own future. So I think our key message is, is that is our our war and we can win it, but only if we can do it together. Just a few minutes after those final remarks, Oksana had to quickly drop off our call because of a bomb warning. She and her family are currently safe. In the days since this interview was recorded, the war has raged on, with civilian casualties mounting and the humanitarian crisis deepening. Mariupol remains under siege, and in the occupied city of Kherson, about 300,000 people are said to be running out of food and medical supplies. We've also seen reports of forced deportations of civilians, including Ukrainian children, from the occupied territories into Russia, and increasing kidnappings of local authorities, journalists, and activists. That's it for this episode. It's also a wrap for our first season of the Civilian Protection Podcast. We'll be taking a few months off to plan our next season and look forward to bringing you new episodes that elevate the voices of civilians caught in conflict. And in the meantime, please help us out by taking a quick five-minute survey so we can learn a little bit about our audience and what you want to hear from us as we work on season two. You can find a link to the survey in the episode description and on our Twitter at at Protection Pod. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Annie Scheel, Beatrice Goodfoy, and Civics Ukraine team, with assistance from Mark Arlasco, Monica Zura, Ari Talani, and Selma von Ushvard. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Monica Zura made the designs and made sure we're online and provided the English voiceover. And of course, we'd like to thank Beatrice, Oksana, Lisa, and Katya for joining us as guests. 
You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content. Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites, civiliansinconflict.org/podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening.